Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Fall is right around the corner. School is starting back up, and it's crunch time. Yes, breakfast cereal. That's what we're talking about today. And stick around after the interview. Shreya Dervasala has another nauseating example of the Trump administration sidelining science. Whether you eat cereal every day, once a week, or hardly ever, the cereal aisle at the grocery store is a familiar sight. It seems to go on for miles, with bright logos on colorful boxes promising an endless array of options. The other day, I had grape nuts for the first time, a hard, perplexing cereal that's deceptively neither grape nor nut. Beyond that, I can't say that I think much about what goes into my cereal other than sugar content, so I was surprised to find out that our options for cereal grains really boil down to just corn, wheat, and oats. This has everything to do with a U.S. farming system that obsessively grows only a few major crops, corn most of all. Not that corn itself is a bad thing. What's bad is using countless acres to grow only corn, year after year. It's also the way we grow corn, which is polluting water, damaging the soil, and releasing heat-trapping gases. But how far do these impacts go? And what would happen if we did things differently? This is what the Union of Concerned Scientists wanted to find out in the report Champions of Breakfast. To learn more about the farm system that fills up our cereal boxes, I sat down with senior analyst Karen Perry Stillerman, my colleague and co-author of the report. We talk about why we ended up with this system in the first place, the devastating effects it has on the environment, and how we can harness that knowledge to take a bite out of climate change. Karen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Colleen. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm really happy to finally uh, get you behind the mic. So tell me, um, what did you have for breakfast today? Well, today I had my usual, which is yogurt and fruit, because it's the summer and fruit is really great. So are you a cereal eater? I am sometimes. Um, I like granola. I like oatmeal when the weather is a little bit more temperate um, than what we have right now. But I will admit, sometimes a box of cereal, a bowl of cereal is just exactly what you want. I had cereal this morning. What'd you have? I had grape nuts. I love grape what, nuts. Why, why are they called grape nuts? I don't know, because there's neither grapes nor nuts. It's really wheat I and know. barley. I, I, it's crunchy and, and compelling in a strange it's always, way. It's always scared me. It, they're like little pebbles. They're so hard. You have to wait a long time. For little them. nuggets. I know. I think that's what I like about them, the crunch. I know, but they, they could break your teeth, I think. <laughs> so I, I interviewed your colleague, Marcia Delange, last month, and we talked about climate change and agriculture, and specifically some of the practices that farmers could use that would protect soil and water and reduce pollution. And I encourage listeners to check out that episode. It was episode 60, Farmers and Crops on a Collision Course with Climate Change, for the detailed science behind these practices. But let's quickly go over the basics. Um, give us a little refresher course. Yeah, well, this serial report was really a, an extension of, of that work and really building on that. But 
you know, most of the nation's grain, and particularly the corn, is grown on huge swaths of the Midwest. It's grown mostly for animal feed and ethanol, but also some for food. And it's grown in ways that really leave soil vulnerable to erosion. It sends excess fertilizer and pesticides into the waterways, and it releases the heat-trapping gas nitrous oxide. It also doesn't do anything to store carbon in the soil. And the better ways that we see and that many farmers are starting to adopt actually do more to save soil and protect our water. And those are things like plowing fields less or not at all, growing cover crops that keep the soil covered, you know, in the wintertime or in between cash crops, um, rotating a wider variety of crops so it's not just corn, corn, corn or corn soy all the time, but things like oats and other crops that can break up pest cycles and keep nutrients in the soil. And then planting deep-rooted perennial crops that really dig down into the soil and do all the things those other practices do, but also store more carbon deep down underground. So where do you plant the perennials? Along the edges or you in can, between? Yeah, you can plant them. There's um, a study in Iowa that looked at what we call prairie strips. And so they plant things like sunflowers and deep-rooted prairie grasses, native plants, in little strips between fields or around fields. And even just 10% of the land with perennials makes a huge difference in terms of how much soil and fertilizer washes off those fields. But perennials are also trees or shrubs. So you could plant fruit trees or nut trees. Right. Good point. I always think of perennials in terms of my garden and what I might might plant in my garden. All kinds of things. Alfalfa is a perennial, and that's an important livestock feed, so you could feed it to cows. The analysis looked at specific cereal companies and estimated the benefits of sourcing grains sustainably. So tell me about the analysis and how you designed it and implemented it. Yeah, it's a it's a cool little analysis. It has lots of steps and is kind of complicated, but I'll try to break it down. So the first thing we did is look at, well, what are the leading um, corn-based and oat-based cereals? Because those are the two grains we really wanted to look at. And so we looked at survey and sales data and determined that um, the leading corn cereal is Frosted Flakes and the leading oat cereal is Honey Nut Cheerios, both of which have a lot of sugar, which is not good. You know, but anyway, when I was a kid, I was loved those cereals. I know. But they are, they're really sugary. They're super sugary. So um, we don't have formulas for those cereals, but we do know that they're mostly grain and then the part that's sugar. So the next part of the analysis was we looked at the ingredient and nutrition labels and assessed how much of the uh, cereal is sugar because it tells you that. And you could subtract that out and figure that Basically, the rest of it is the primary grain. So that told us how much grain is in a box of cereal. And from there, we could calculate how many acres of land it would take to grow the amount of grain in that box multiplied out um, by the sales for all of the boxes that are produced and eaten in this country in a year. So now we know how much acreage we're talking about. And then we use data from another Iowa State University study that showed the benefits of uh, crop rotations and including more grains and growing specifically oats together with corn and soybeans. And so we developed some scenarios and basically they were what would happen if a company, any company, um, produced or purchased grain, whether it's corn or oats, in, in the two scenarios, in amounts similar to what's used in those two cereals every year? 
And but if the grain was grown in a more sustainable way, such as in that rotation. And then to compare, the other scenario we looked at is what if a company bought oats in the same amount to make that many servings of just plain old oatmeal? And so then we could see what would happen environmentally. What will happen? So, so the details are all in the report, but essentially, I mean, there are real benefits to be had if companies did purchase more sustainably grown grains. The benefits for frosted flakes with more sustainable corn are significant. There are even greater benefits for growing oats that way, so such as in Honey Nut Cheerios and much greater benefits for sustainably grown oatmeal. So let's look at the oatmeal, the annual benefits you'd get if a company purchased more sustainably grown oats for that amount of oatmeal eaten every year. We'd save a million dollars in water cleanup costs from erosion that didn't happen. We'd save $12 million in reduced damage from nitrogen fertilizer pollution and water that didn't happen. And climate benefits from avoided nitrous oxide uh, emissions from the fertilizer that, that didn't need to be applied would be the equivalent of taking about 12,000 cars off the road wow. every year. And, you know, those can seem big or small depending on how you look at it. But basically, they're illustrations. You know, these are just a couple of cereals that we're talking about and oatmeal. There are a lot of cereals that, you know, you walk down the supermarket aisle, you see how many different cereals they are. Four big companies make almost all of them. Together, those four companies, and you know their names, they're General Mills and Post and Kellogg's and Quaker Oats. Together, they control 86% of a market that's about $8.5 billion annually. And those companies don't just make cereal. So Quaker Oats is owned by PepsiCo. And, and all of those companies have other divisions and make lots of other food and beverage products. So you can imagine, just from our little illustrative examples, it's a small thing, but it could leverage bigger things. And so if companies start seeking out more sustainably grown ingredients for cereals and all the other products they make, then we can make a real difference. Yeah, it feels less overwhelming than thinking about climate change in terms of the entire globe. So how do you go about getting these companies to change their practices? Are there real possibilities to get them to change? I think there are. So we put out this report to start a conversation. And so this is just a conversation that we're starting to have. But some of the cereal companies, and General Mills in particular, have made big commitments recently to purchase ingredients and find ways of converting more land to these kind of sustainable practices. And so we hope that what they see in this report are some ways to implement those commitments. And we hope the other companies who haven't done it will start to see ways and, and we'll be talking to them and we'll eventually be pushing them to do that. Because, you know, in Iowa and across the Corn Belt, farmers need to change. And a lot of them really know it. You see it in the news every day. Farmers are struggling. Crop prices are low, bankruptcies on farms are on the rise, you've got trade wars that are making everything worse. The soil is eroding at rates that are just totally unsustainable and really threaten the ability of farmers to pass down viable farms to their kids and their grandkids and to keep growing food into the future. We've got water pollution that is poisoning water supplies right in Iowa, in in the states where all this farming is happening, but also damaging fisheries all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. And so farmers know this and policymakers know this. The 
policies or the practices need to change, but farmers also have to have new markets. So that's one of the obstacles, right, is some of the obstacles to switching practices are things like upfront costs, like, oh, I need a new harvester if I'm going to grow oats. Other things are, I just don't really know how to grow oats, and the oats haven't been optimized for my area, and that's a thing that research and technical assistance can fix. But some of the things are, I don't know where I'd sell oats. So we hear that, and our friends in Iowa hear that from farmers all the time. I'd love to do this. I don't know what, I would harvest the oats at the end of the season, and then what would I do with them? There's no one here to buy them. And so that's, I think, what we're asking the companies to do. At the same time, we need better public policies that help underwrite some of the costs while the markets are getting rolling. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript or links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you want to get directly to the analysis, go to ucsusa.org slash champions of breakfast. If you have a sec, please help us promote the podcast Tell your friends, colleagues, family, your nana about the episodes and topics you like. You can also leave us a review. It's quick and easy. When you open Got Science in your podcast app, scroll down to the bottom to ratings and reviews and leave a comment. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at Got Science UCS. Now let's get back to our interview. So Karen, say more about the rotation study. What was that? Yeah, it's really cool and it's ongoing. So this is a 17 year and counting experiment at Iowa State University and the researchers there are essentially comparing the norm in Iowa, which is corn and soybeans, to a longer rotation that includes things like oats or any other small grain. It could be barley or something else. Alfalfa, that deep-rooted perennial that's used as cattle feed. Um, and cover crops. And so they uh, have been experimenting on different plots of what happens when you grow just the two crops versus three or four. And the results are really kind of astonishing. Like those longer rotations show clear environmental benefits. They uh, much less soil erodes from the field much less fertilizer is needed, which means less fertilizer runoff. Fewer herbicides are needed because the different crops break up pest cycles, so you don't get as much insect pressure or weed pressure. And all of this happens while maintaining the profits and the yields for farmers, so it's really cool. So when did they start the study? Uh, That's a good question. What was 17 years ago? Oh, so it's- uh, 2002, Oh, okay, so it's been 17 years. Yeah, it, it, it continues. Very, very cool. And and that's, you know, so it was the latest paper. They've put out a series of scientific papers documenting these results. And the latest one was published earlier this year. And that's the one that we use to, to base our results in this serial report on. So do farmers look at these studies? They do. There's a group called Practical Farmers of Iowa, and they're really cool people. They've been advocating cover crops and these crop rotations for a long time. And they're, you know, 
talking to the researchers at Iowa State all the time. And, you know, they've got farmers who are trialing this on their own and who are ramping up production of oats, which, you know, oats used to be grown in places like Iowa, but they were grown mostly for horse feed back when horses were tractors. And then tractors came along and I think farmers thought there was a whole lot less need for oats. So they used to grow a lot of them, now grow very few, but you can still grow them there and you can grow them well in these rotations. The interesting thing about oats is that they're a cool season crop. So they grow like in the spring. So you can plant them really, really early. They like the cool weather. They grow and you can harvest them before you plant your corn or soybeans, which are a hot season crop. So it's a And you win. still have time for a winter cover crop if you do it right. So it's a it's a win-win as long as they have something to do with those oats. They have as some way long, to sell right, them. Because they're, they're making an investment in buying the seed and planting and harvesting. So they've got to be able to know they have a market. Where am I going to take it? Who's going to buy it from me? What, what do you think the biggest challenges are for changing the system? Are farmers in general in favor of it? Or are there farmers who really don't want to change? I mean, I think it's complicated. Farmers are just like the rest of us, right? Change is hard. Um, and especially if you've been doing things in a particular way for decades and you know how to do it that way, it's hard to imagine what you, we would do that might feel radically different. But I think I, I heard an interesting anecdote the other day um, from a farmer saying when they implemented this kind of longer rotation, it made farming feel exciting and challenging again. It, you know, it sort of sparked their mind. They had to really think about it. And, you know, doing something different can be fun, too. Right. It's a change is, is hard, but but engaging in a lot of ways. But farmers, you know, they also, they want to take good care of the land and they want to pass something valuable along to the next generation. And if they see their soil washing away and they see, you know, the water pollution that results, that doesn't make anybody feel good. So I I think it's helping them make the change they want to make by making sure that the public policies are in place and the markets are there. So what are some of the policy avenues So, uh, you know, there are things, there are um, programs in the farm bill that actually help underwrite the costs of switching practices. So can actually give farmers financial assistance to buy that new harvester or um, to buy cover crop seed or to plant prairie strips around their farm, those kinds of things. Some of it is um, research and technical assistance and actually having extension agents out in the field to help farmers figure this out and figure out how they would do this on their piece of land because every piece of land is different. And then again, some of it is just linking up the buyers and sellers, making sure there's someone who can buy and take delivery of those oats at the end of the season. What size farms are we talking about? We're talking about farms of all sizes, really. I mean, they can be really small or or midsize or even large. It's really the practices that are in place on each acre that matters. Are there things that individuals can do to sort of help push this forward? Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the conclusions of our report is that all of us as eaters have a role, right? So we're all standing there in the supermarket aisle thinking about what to buy, what to eat for breakfast. And so you can, you can make choices. I mean, right now, the best I think we could do is buy an organic brand of cereal because there you at least know that a lot of these kinds of practices are what's 
you know, going into that grain. But then, you know, we're also consumers who can give companies feedback. So yeah, we can ask companies questions. I'd love to have people sending this report to General Mills or Kellogg's and saying, okay, so what are you doing? Tell us about your purchasing strategies and what you are doing and can do. And then we'll talk about how you could do better. And then we're all also citizens and voters, right? So there's the part about encouraging Congress and the USDA to do more, encouraging state governments to do more to support farmers who are practicing this kind of agriculture and producing food for all of us that's more environmentally sustainable. So how did we end up with a system where we're just growing corn and soybeans? So it's been a progression over the last 40, 50 years of specialization. And I think, you know, it comes out of a mindset of treating a farm like a factory and doing one thing because you can do one thing faster and better and grow more of it. But what that overlooks is all of the other impacts. And it overlooks the fact that, you know, a farm isn't a factory. A farm is actually an ecosystem. And, you know, you take a hike in the forest, you don't just see one kind of tree. You don't just see one kind of plant in a meadow. You need lots of different plants and animals and insects and all of those things. So it's the result of short-sighted policies that um, we put in place and we can put different policies in place. So I've been on a tear about single-use plastic lately, and I have been writing to different companies. It's really quite easy. Do you get responses? Sometimes I get quick responses that are very well formulated. So you know that they've heard that question before. You know, so the follow-up questions are a little bit harder to get good answers to. But it's it's surprisingly easy to do. And it's good. You feel good that you're asking, why are you using this plastic packaging on your eggs instead of the cartons and you get back interesting responses one response i got was that it's actually from a carbon point of view you use less carbon making recyclable making plastic egg containers with recycled plastic than using the um you know molded Mm -hmm. cardboard ones like, okay, well, that's interesting. It's not helping my sea turtles. You know, so there are different scenarios what you're trying to accomplish. But Well, companies need to hear from their customers, right? So General Mills doesn't know that you're interested in where the oats in your Cheerios came from and how they were grown unless you tell them, right? right? And, so, and with the internet and Google, it's just really easy to do it these days. You don't have to absolutely. find an address and write a letter with a pen and paper. You can just you do it in you could tweet at them. You could tweet. You could tweet the link to our report at the cereal company. Absolutely, absolutely. Say, hey, did you see this? What are you doing? Exactly. So you're essentially telling me I don't real. I don't need to make a stand by giving up my Fruit Loops. I can just well, write to we the company even, and we won't <laughs> even talk about all the sugar in the Fruit Loops, Colleen. But you might want to dial your, back. What's your least favorite cereal? My least favorite cereal. Uh, I. I don't know. I never, I never understood Lucky Charms. I was like, just what is the say deal that? with what marshmallow for breakfast? That's weird. I, but I did. I will say that in college, I ate an unconscionable amount of Apple Jacks oh. because there they were in the cafeteria, and sometimes the food was really bad. But I don't advise that, really. 
No, I don't eat. I haven't eaten these types of cereals since I was a kid. I mean, I, I ate the sugary cereals when I was a kid. But um, one that I did like was corn pops. I thought those were those good. Those were good. Yeah. Oh, well, I do want to make clear that we are not endorsing any we're, cereals here. These are all personal we're opinions. We're really not. But, but again, like oatmeal, oatmeal is where it's at. Or you buy that same box of oatmeal and you make granola out of it. Interesting. Yeah. I've never made granola. It's easy. I'll show you how sometime. Excellent. Well, Karen, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It was great talking to you. It was really fun. And now it's time for a short segment we call Sidelining Science, the latest news from an administration that doesn't give a hoot about endangered animals. Our Shreya Dervasala has the story. When the Endangered Species Act was passed in 1973, it was intended to be based on science and scientific evidence. And there's a lot of science that goes into determining whether a species of animal needs legal protection against being hunted, or against its habitat being developed, or whether its survival as a species is at risk. For example, scientists need to understand breeding cycles, the adaptability of an animal, and how it will respond to a changing climate. Those poor botanists, conservationists, wildlife biologists, and zoologists working so hard to protect plants and animals for many years. They can put their feet up now, thanks to the Trump administration, which has given science a break from determining whether animals need protection under this act, and is now leaving those decisions up to special interests. In July, the administration issued a final rule on the Endangered Species Act that allows, quote, economic considerations, unquote, to determine whether species and their habitats are endangered under the law. In other words, if the cost of continuing to protect wildlife and habitats is perceived as too great by decision makers in the administration, many of whom are former fossil fuel lobbyists with financial stakes in oil and gas development, then those species and habitats simply won't be protected. For example, if science tells the administration that the American West habitats of the at-risk sage-grouse should be federally protected from development, the administration could counter, well, the land would make a lot more money if oil and gas extraction moved in, and then so long, sage-grouse. Because who cares about spending money to protect at-risk animals from certain extinction when you could make money destroying their habitats? The new rule also gives scientists a break by refusing to consider climate change and its future effects when determining which species earn a spot on the list. What a relief, because basically all species are going to be affected by climate change. Now we can just forget about the more sensitive ones that won't adapt as easily as the rest. My normally very funny colleague Jacob Carter blogged about the revisions to the Endangered Species Act, and he wrote, quote, Once a species is gone, it's gone forever. Such losses may have large effects on ecosystems and us. That's why it's so critically important to protect our most threatened and endangered species. This new rule will result in less protection for America's threatened wildlife and a higher likelihood of losing species forever as Earth's sixth mass extinction occurs. End quote. Total buzzkill, Jacob! Maybe he just hasn't tried looking at this rule from the perspective of a fossil fuel industry lobbyist. Through this rule, the Trump administration is putting short-term profits over the long-term survival of vulnerable animals and habitats in the U.S. And these revisions to the Endangered Species Act 
are the literal definition of sidelining science. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our Partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to senior analyst Karen Perry-Stillerman, sidelining science by Shreya Dravasula, editing and music by Brian Middleton, additional editing by Omari Spears, research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jiayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.